Due to the graphic nature of this dictator's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of animal abuse, murder, and sexual assault. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In July 1540, 30-year-old conquistador Francisco Vasquez de Coronado finally reached Cibola in present-day New Mexico. This was the goal of a grueling expedition that had lasted nearly five months. Coronado drove his men hard towards Cibola for one simple reason. The city was allegedly made of gold. But gold wasn't at the forefront of his mind at the moment, because now the expedition was running out of supplies. More than gold, Coronado needed Cibola's resources, and he was more than willing to take them by force. Coronado's vanguard, composed of a few hundred hungry soldiers and over a thousand Native Americans, marched on Cibola. They hoped the city would just surrender, but they found nearly 300 Zuni people with bows and shields waiting for them, ready to defend their homes. Coronado was undeterred. He would let no one prevent him from reaching the City of Gold. He ordered his men to read out the Recarimiento, the formal demand that indigenous people accept the rule of Spain. The Recarimiento concluded with an ultimatum. Coronado's lieutenant shouted that if Cibola didn't surrender, quote, With the help of God, I will attack you mightily. I will make war against you everywhere and in every way I can. I will take your wives and children, and I will make them slaves. The Recarimiento was read three times, and each time the Zuni people responded by firing arrows at the Spaniards. So Coronado ordered his cavalry to charge and kill anyone who stood in their way. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season on Dictators, we're traveling back to the 16th century and exploring the lives of the conquistadors. Today, we're exploring the life of Francisco Vasquez de Coronado, a Spanish conquistador who led an expedition into the modern-day Southwest United States. We'll look at Coronado's time as governor of Nueva Galicia in western Mexico and his quest to find the legendary Seven Cities of Gold. Next time, we'll dive into Coronado's brutal treatment of indigenous people, his journey to the Great Plains, and the disastrous consequences of his expedition. We'll have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money. Up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight 
starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Francisco Vasquez de Coronado was born in Salamanca in north-central Spain in 1510. Little is known about his childhood, but he likely spent much of it in the city of Granada in southern Spain. Granada was taken back from the Moors during his parents' generation. The region was characterized by military might, Christian pride, and suspicion of non-Christians. It was in this heady atmosphere that Coronado came of age. Coronado's early years were relatively comfortable, as his father was a royal administer in Granada between 1515 and 1516. His family was wealthy, but as his parents' second son, Coronado wouldn't receive much of an inheritance. Still, he was a caballero, a knight or gentleman. He had a good family, some material wealth, fine manners, and he was good with a sword. But Coronado wanted to rise above his status in society. Without the promise of inheritance, he'd have to rely on his family's connections to gain an estate for himself through marriage or conquest. Coronado believed that only in the new world could he find the opportunities to rise above the circumstances of his birth. The conquistadors were household names, and he wanted the name Coronado to echo in men's minds as loudly as that of Cortez or Pizarro. Thus, 25-year-old Coronado asked his father's boss to arrange for him to sail to Mexico in 1535. He accompanied the Viceroy of New Spain, Antonio de Mendoza, as part of the Viceroy's staff. But simply going to the New World didn't make him a conquistador. In Spain and its colonies, land provided wealth and honor. Coronado knew that owning a grand estate was the surest path to raising his status. To that end, not long after arriving in New Spain, Coronado eagerly married Beatriz de Estrada, the royal treasurer's daughter. Her dowry provided Coronado with an encomienda, a tract of land that came with enslaved indigenous people. Thanks to Estrada's dowry, Coronado became a very wealthy man practically overnight. Coronado's encomienda was in present-day Guerrero, Mexico, and was the third largest in the New World. The estate was far larger than what he would have received from his inheritance. It would have satisfied most Spanish caballeros. But gaining land as a dowry didn't make Coronado famous. He knew if he wished to reach the highest status in the New World, he would need to accomplish far more. And there were still many opportunities for exploration, discovery, and conquest in the Americas. Despite 20 years of exploring present-day Mexico and points south, 
Much of North America was still a complete mystery to the Spanish. They called it Tierra Nueva, and some even believed it might be connected via land bridge to China or India. Since so little was known about Tierra Nueva, it was common to wildly speculate about what could be found there. Rumors about vast treasure were widespread. Not long after he arrived in the New World, one of these wild rumors excited the imaginations of nearly everyone living in the territory. And this same rumor would ultimately change Coronado's life forever. In 1536, the same year of Coronado's marriage to Beatriz, the survivors of the Narvaez expedition returned to Mexico City eight years after they'd left. The expedition had sailed from the Caribbean island of Hispaniola to Florida, then traveled thousands of miles overland to Mexico City. And almost none survived. Of the expedition's 600 initial members, only four made it back alive. But the story they brought back spread faster than any tales of their hardship. The four survivors reported that during their long journey around the Gulf, they heard wondrous tales of large, wealthy cities further north. They were called the Seven Cities of Gold, which the Spaniards came to know as Cibola. In time, Coronado's fate would become intertwined with the search for the Seven Cities of Gold, but not yet. While the first rumors of Cibola made the rounds in Mexico City, Coronado was busy proving himself to Viceroy Mendoza. In 1537, Mendoza sent Coronado to the province of Nueva Galicia, a large region of western Mexico. There had been an indigenous uprising in the region, and the governor, Diego Perez de la Torre, had been trampled by his horse in a battle. Coronado was accompanied by a Franciscan friar named Marcos de Niza, who had a mission of his own. The friar was tasked with verifying the reports of the Narvaez expedition survivors about the existence of Cibola. After Niza and Coronado reached the capital of Nueva Galicia, they parted ways. Niza continued northward to seek the truth about Cibola, while Coronado got to work checking out the governor appointed by Torre in his final days. Although Torre had elected this new leader, pending Mendoza's approval, Coronado was named governor of Nueva Galicia instead. Considering Coronado's lack of experience, Mendoza may have been blinded by his friendship with Coronado in naming him governor. Nevertheless, Coronado was quick to show his ruthlessness. He hanged and quartered the imprisoned war leader of the indigenous rebellion. But Coronado wasn't interested in just being a governor. He hoped that Niza would return with news of new land for him to conquer. Coronado had come to New Spain with little more than a respectable name and some useful connections. Within a few short years, he'd become one of the most powerful men in the region. And Coronado wanted to use every bit of that power to his advantage. Coming up, Coronado embarks on an expedition that will change his life. The floorboards creak. The walls, they moan. The house seems vacant, but you're not alone. This October, Parcast invites you to celebrate the spookiness of the Halloween season with all new episodes of Haunted Places. From an infamous murder farm in Indiana 
to the ghostly tombs and palaces of ancient Egypt, visit the world's most haunted destinations, and find out what happens when a soul leaves the body, but doesn't leave the grounds. Enjoy new episodes of Haunted Places all month long, free, and only on Spotify. Now back to the story. By 1538, 28-year-old Francisco Vasquez de Coronado had risen from relative obscurity to become the governor of Nueva Galicia in New Spain. However, he knew he largely owed his success to a lucky marriage and his friendship with Viceroy Antonio de Mendoza. And Coronado still wanted more. While Coronado was considering how to further prove his worth, Mendoza was investigating rumors of the seven cities of gold known as Cibola. This wealthy metropolis was said to rival that of Tenochtitlan, the capital of the Aztec Empire plundered by Hernán Cortés almost two decades before. When Mendoza dispatched Coronado to Nueva Galicia, he'd also sent a Franciscan friar, Marcos de Niza, to journey north. Niza's mission was simple, to find hard evidence of Cibola's location. In late summer 1539, Niza returned to New Spain, having journeyed at least as far north as the modern Arizona-New Mexico border. Along the way, he gathered indigenous stories about northern cities teeming with gold and jewels. But the journey had been difficult and dangerous. One of the four survivors of the Narvaez expedition had accompanied the friar, only to be hacked to death during an attack by a local indigenous tribe. Fearing that his own life was in danger, Niza had turned back before he reached Cibola. However, he insisted that he'd been close enough to see it in the distance. Upon his return, Niza described what he'd seen to Coronado. He said there was a fabulous settlement even bigger than Tenochtitlan, which was the largest known settlement in the Americas at that time. Coronado was thrilled. He likely sensed this was his opportunity to make a name for himself, just like Cortez. Conquering another city like Tenochtitlan was certain to earn him the prestige that brought him to the New World in the first place. Coronado and Niza rushed back to Mexico City to inform Viceroy Mendoza. They arrived on September 2, 1539, and were received with great fanfare. Both men had seemingly succeeded in their missions. But as Niza retold what he'd seen, his tales became increasingly fantastical. Even though he hadn't reached Cibola, he described walled cities filled with gold and silver where the women all wore gold necklaces and the men wore belts of gold. Mendoza was intrigued by the stories, but not yet convinced. Niza had stories, but no hard evidence. To verify the priest's claims, Mendoza tasked a conquistador, Melchior Diaz, with leading an armed reconnaissance mission along the same route Niza had taken. Yet before Diaz had even returned, Mendoza grew impatient. Fired up by the stories of golden cities, he decided to launch a full invasion of Cibola. And to lead the expedition, Mendoza turned to his protege, Francisco Vasquez de Coronado. However, the Coronado expedition, as it came to be known, was not financed or even approved by the Spanish crown. 
The whole undertaking, which was a mix of a grand exploration mission, an invasion, and a business venture, was a private enterprise funded by investors in Mexico City. After all, if the expedition found even a fraction of the amount of gold rumored to exist in Cibola, they would all become unfathomably rich. Mendoza was one of the leading investors, as was fellow conquistador Pedro de Alvarado, then governor of Guatemala. Meanwhile, Coronado mortgaged his considerable land holdings to help finance the expedition. Essentially, Coronado was betting his entire livelihood on finding Cibola. Coronado and Mendoza assembled a small army of Spaniards in Mexico City to fill the expedition's ranks. Some were middle-class tradesmen, while others were caballeros like Coronado, men who had come to the New World seeking fame, adventure, and wealth. At least 800 indigenous Mexica also joined the ranks. But unlike previous Spanish expeditions, which used enslaved indigenous people as porters, Mendoza decreed that only indigenous volunteers would be permitted. Though these indigenous volunteers could leave the group if they chose, the many enslaved Africans on the expedition could not. They were forced to wait on the Spanish officers, including Coronado. In late February 1540, the final group was assembled. Some scholars say that over 2,000 people were part of the expedition. Like Coronado, many of those present were risking everything for a chance of success. They were almost certainly anxious to get started and fearful of the danger that awaited them. But the sight of their Captain General, Coronado, must have reassured them. On the day the expedition was set to commence, Coronado arrived before the assembled group, trotting about on a magnificent black stallion. Wearing a golden helmet with a feathered plume, he looked the part of a brave conquistador. At his signal, the long march into the mysterious lands of Tierra Nueva began. The expedition soon learned that Coronado was a strict leader. Two days into the journey, Coronado circulated a decree that expedition members must avoid blasphemy, taking indigenous concubines, or gambling. A witness later remarked that Coronado would place an offender in chains for two or three days, even for very small offenses. Coronado intended to keep his people orderly and obedient for the duration of the march to prevent any problems that would slow him down. Despite his strict control over his people, Coronado's eventual difficulties had little to do with manpower and everything to do with resources. And the first signs of trouble came just a few days later. One of the expedition's first stops was at Chiametla in present-day Sinaloa. Despite bringing hundreds of livestock animals and massive quantities of provisions, the expedition was already low on food. So Coronado had his second-in-command, Lope de Samaniego, ride out with a small force to demand food from the local people. Samaniego was a poor choice for the job, though. He had led the initial conquest of the area himself back in the early 1530s and was despised by the locals. The Chiametlans refused his demands for food, and violence broke out. During the fighting, the Chiametlans targeted Samaniego. They shot an arrow through his eye into his brain, killing him instantly. 
Without stopping to mourn the loss, Coronado sent out a second foraging party, which captured food supplies and indigenous prisoners. Coronado had no intention of making his mission a goodwill tour and immediately executed any prisoners he believed were involved in killing Samaniego. While he was at Chiametla, Coronado met Melchior Diaz, who was returning from his reconnaissance of the northern lands. In private, Diaz reported what he'd witnessed in his search for Cibola. It wasn't encouraging. Rather than seven golden cities, he'd only found three impoverished villages. And while Friar Niza had insisted that the path northward was easygoing, Diaz reported that the land was in fact mountainous and difficult. Much to Coronado's dismay, Diaz believed there was nothing worthwhile in the territory ahead. The news leaked out to the rest of the expedition, stirring fears and anxieties amongst Coronado's men. But Niza, who had joined the expedition right from the start, reassured everyone that Cibola was truly out there. He swore that soon everyone's hands would be full of gold. Won over by Niza's optimism and clinging to dreams of immense wealth, the expedition resumed their march towards Cibola. In March 1540, the expedition reached Culiacan, the present-day capital of Sinaloa, at the very edge of Spanish territory. There, Coronado divided the expedition in half, as the whole group together was still too great a strain on resources. He personally led a vanguard of about 100 cavalry and a thousand of his indigenous allies to scout the path ahead for provisions. He told the rest of the party to follow in two weeks. Within days, it became obvious that the terrain was far more difficult than Friar Niza described. Coronado's vanguard struggled over mountains and across a barren desert that offered little food or water. Several men and many horses perished by the time Coronado crossed the modern U.S.-Mexico border somewhere in Arizona. In June, almost three months after the expedition divided, the vanguard reached a small indigenous village called Chichilticale. The locals had no food to spare and informed Coronado that the ocean was still a two-week journey away. This was a crucial problem because the expedition had expected to be resupplied by ship. The news infuriated Coronado, who had been reassured by Niza that the sea was only a few miles off. Coronado wrote to Mendoza expressing his frustration that everything Niza told them seemed to be untrue. Nevertheless, the vanguard pushed on through eastern Arizona, reaching the Zuni River Valley in western New Mexico in July of 1540. Coronado lost more men and horses to hunger and dehydration along the way, but he believed the losses would be worth it. Once they reached Cibola, they could resupply and bring the rest of his men to carry the vast mountains of gold he was certain they would find. Coronado had mortgaged his whole livelihood on finding Cibola. If he failed, he would be utterly ruined. There would be no turning back. Coming up, Coronado reaches the walls of Cibola. Now back to the story. In July 1540, after months traversing unforgiving wilderness, 30-year-old Francisco Vasquez de Coronado believed he was nearing Cibola. 
The stories of Friar Marcos de Niza led Coronado to believe that Cibola was the location of the Seven Cities of Gold. However, after crossing hundreds of miles of mountains and desert, Niza's descriptions largely seemed to be false. While Coronado's faith in the friar's tales waned, he still hoped that Cibola would be as magnificent as the rumors claimed. Coronado imagined Cibola to be another Tenochtitlan, the former Aztec capital. In his mind's eye, Cibola must have been a sprawling city of colored pyramids and bustling marketplaces. He likely anticipated thousands of native people in Cibola wearing dazzling gold and silver jewelry, carrying gifts and singing songs of celebration. But as the vanguard crossed the Zuni River, the alleged final step before reaching Cibola, Coronado and his men received a rude surprise. Rather than a glittering metropolis of gold, they found a small village made of stone and mud. There were no soaring pyramids, just small Pueblo buildings three or four stories high and a single patio used as a town square. While the Spanish called the settlement Cibola, the indigenous Zuni residents called the village Hawiku, and there wasn't a crowd of thousands ready to welcome them, just a few hundred suspicious Zuni clutching bows and shields. Worst of all, there wasn't a nugget of gold or silver in sight. Once the initial shock wore off, Coronado and the rest were furious, and they directed their ire at Niza, the friar who had deceived them. It was now obvious that Cibola was not the promised city of gold. As infuriating as the situation was, Coronado was still deep in foreign territory, and he was supposed to conquer this region for Spain. So Coronado took two of the villagers hostage and announced to the others that they were now the subjects of the King of Spain. Unsurprisingly, the Zuni didn't like the sound of that. Over a hundred warriors gathered before the vanguard, shouting angrily and throwing dirt at them. In response, Coronado tried diplomacy first. He released the hostages and sent forward scouts with gifts. But in return, Coronado insisted that the Zuni had to submit to Spain and accept Christianity. His men read them the Recaramiento, a document from the Spanish crown. Conquistadors were instructed to read it aloud when first coming into contact with indigenous people. The intent was to give the indigenous people a chance to peacefully surrender. However, it promised the Spaniards would turn to violence if they didn't, even though the document was written in Spanish and wasn't read with interpreters present. According to the Recarimiento, failure to comply gave a so-called legal justification to attack. The Zuni responded to the Recarimiento by shooting arrows at Coronado's men. Without hesitation, Coronado ordered a cavalry charge. This was the first documented encounter between indigenous people and horses in the region. And it was a massacre. When the surviving Zuni warriors retreated to their village, Coronado ordered an assault on Hawiku. However, the Zuni managed to hold off the Spanish attack by shooting arrows and throwing rocks from their rooftops. Coronado joined the fight too, but a stone soon hit him on the head and knocked him unconscious. He was dragged to safety and missed the rest of the battle. 
His men fired a cannon barrage that forced the Zuni to abandon the town. One Spaniard claimed that 12 Zuni died in the battle, while the rest of the town fled. Coronado's starving party then helped themselves to the stores of food the Zuni left behind. After a few days, the Zuni sent a delegation to Coronado to negotiate. Once again, he demanded that they pay homage to the King of Spain and embrace Christianity. No doubt eager to get their homes back, the Zuni agreed. Though the vanguard had saved themselves by plundering the village's food supplies, they still didn't find any of the fabled gold and silver. Coronado reported to Mendoza that he suspected there was no precious metal to be found, but still hoped to be proven wrong. So he set about exploring the region and attacking other Pueblo villages. He also decided it was time to dispose of Friar Marcos de Niza. He'd had enough of the friar's tall tales, and with his men still angry, he could no longer guarantee Niza's safety. So Coronado sent him away on the 3,000-mile journey back to Mexico City with the excuse of taking a progress report to Mendoza. With Niza no longer around to mislead them, Coronado had made a big step toward getting the expedition back on track. But he also realized finding the City of Gold was going to take much longer than he had anticipated. To make matters worse, the expedition was still low on supplies. The Hawiku village, which he still called Sibola, couldn't supply him indefinitely. So once again, his priority turned to resources. To rescue the expedition, Coronado dispatched Melchior Diaz to make contact with a fleet of supply ships. The vessels had been dispatched months ago, but Niza's directions had led the expedition away from the sea. Diaz eventually discovered that the supply ships had already given up on trying to find Coronado and had turned back to New Spain. But that wasn't the worst news to reach Coronado. While returning to Hawiku, Diaz became enraged when he saw a dog chase one of his unit's sheep. He threw his spear at the dog, but missed. The spear got stuck upright in the ground, and then as Diaz's horse charged the dog, it threw him off the saddle. Diaz was impaled through the groin on his own spear and died three weeks later. To Coronado, it might have seemed like the expedition was cursed. Niza had badly misled him. Diaz had died from a freak accident, and all of his attempts to find gold had come up empty. After losing Diaz, Coronado grasped at any opportunity he could find. About 90 miles northwest of Hawiku, Coronado encountered the Hopi people. They told him stories of unusually tall people who lived near a large river in the region and had great wealth. Undoubtedly, the Hopi made up the story to encourage the Spaniards to leave them alone, but Coronado bought it. He sent out Garcia Lopez de Cardenas, his new second-in-command, on a reconnaissance mission of the area. Cardenas didn't find the tall people, but he did find something truly remarkable, the Grand Canyon. He was the first European to glimpse the natural wonder. But after three days of trying to find a way to climb down the canyon, Cardenas gave up and retreated back to Hawiku. The Grand Canyon was an exciting find, 
But it did not justify the expedition's enormous expense, nor solve Coronado's supply problems. His campaign was looking more and more like a failure. But then he found an opportunity that he hoped would solve all his troubles. In the autumn of 1540, Coronado met a delegation of indigenous people from a place called Kikuye, near present-day Pecos, New Mexico. They brought the Spaniards several gifts, including a shield made from buffalo hide. The buffalo was new to Coronado, and hides were considered valuable commodities. Desperate for any resource that could make the expedition worthwhile, Coronado decided to hunt down more of these unusual bovines. He dispatched about 20 men to the east to investigate the buffalo herds, led by Captain Hernando de Alvarado. After crossing the Rio Grande, the party finally made it to the village of Kikuye in September. The villagers celebrated their arrival by presenting them with two indigenous guides to help them find the buffalo. The Spaniards called these guides Isopete and the Turk. They were both from a place called Kivira, located farther north in the Great Plains. The Turk told Captain Hernando that Kivira was a magnificent city filled with gold and silver. Excited by the news, Hernando abandoned plans to track the buffalo and headed back to Coronado in Hawiku. As Hernando was en route, the main body of the expedition finally reached Hawiku in mid-November 1540. This was the group of over 1,000 men from which Coronado had detached his vanguard months before. The reunion of the expedition only exacerbated the food crisis. Coronado had to find some way to feed his people immediately, or they would all face starvation and death. Fortunately, he learned of a new location where he could get supplies. To the east was a community of pueblos called Tiwish, near present-day Albuquerque. Coronado knew that the relatively large community would be well-stocked with food and water. So Coronado marched his army out of Hawiku and toward Tiwish. He arrived there before the year was out. At Tiwish, Captain Hernando de Alvarado reunited with Coronado. He imprisoned and brought the indigenous guide called the Turk with him. The Turk told Coronado the stories of his wealthy homeland, which became more grandiose with every retelling. Just as they had with Friar Niza, Coronado and the other Spaniards eagerly devoured the tales. The other imprisoned guide, Isopete, tried to tell them that none of the Turk's stories were true, but the Spaniards ignored him. Coronado in particular was reinvigorated by the Turk's description of Kivira. Sibola had been a disappointment, but now he believed he was finally back on track. Kivira was a new version of the seven cities of gold he could still hope to discover and conquer. The road thus far had been longer and bloodier than Coronado had anticipated. Violence had been necessary to keep the expedition running, but in order to find a city of gold, Coronado would turn to increasingly brutal methods. He believed that blood was the cost of prestige, and he would stop at nothing to achieve his goal. His cruelty eventually became so apparent that it would even shock his own countrymen. The name Francisco Vasquez de Coronado would soon echo throughout the New World, not as a hero, but as a monster. 
Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next time, we'll explore Coronado's war against Tiwish, his journey to Kivira, and the consequences of his crimes against humanity. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Dictators was written by Devin Hughes, edited by Andrew Kelleher and Andrew Messer, fact-checked by Mary Mathis, researched by Bradley Klein, and produced by Joshua Kern. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Richard Rossner.